today. And uh, if you remember, last week we started a new series called Living Faith. And we're going through the book of Luke. You can open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 16. We're going to be in verses 19 through 31. And as you're turning there, I'll tell you a quick story. My wife and I found ourselves recently on an airplane that was delayed. Uh, We got on the plane in time. We had a connecting flight in Charlotte. We were trying to get home to our kids. And uh, we get on this plane on time. And then about every 20 minutes, the pilot came over the intercom and said we'd be taking off in about 10 to 15 minutes. And that happened for about an hour and a half to two hours. Maybe you've been there. And well, during that time, uh, you know, I was just like, I wanted to get to Charlotte so I could catch my, my flight, which we did miss that connecting flight. And it was the last flight of the day. So that put us a day behind getting home to our family. And I remember sitting on that plane and I'm an antsy guy when I travel. I have my guitar with me. So I'm always antsy, like, where's my guitar? Where's it going to end up? And my, you can ask my wife about it. And uh, so I felt my patience kind of being tried. And I was like a little bit, I'm trying not to be frustrated. And I'm sitting on this plane and everybody, everyone's in the same situation, right? And so uh, I'm sitting there. Well, it finally came time to taxi out to the runway. And I was, at this point, my posture of heart was simply like, let's go. I don't care what's going on. Let's just get this plane in the air. And I'm looking at my phone and I'm trying to figure out if there's another flight I can get on. And at that point, uh, the messenger, the flight attendant gets up in the highway to share the good news, the instruction uh, for what to do in the case of an emergency. And my posture of heart was not in it. My eyes were not on her. My ears were turned off. And I just wanted what I wanted in that moment. And I didn't hear a word that the wonderful flight attendant said. Sorry if you're a flight attendant here today. (laughs) I was that guy that day. Well, then our plane took off finally. We got up in the air at, you know, 40,000 feet or whatever you fly. And uh, don't ask me why, but the scenario came into my mind. Man, what if this plane crashed? They should tell you about that. (laughs) What if this plane was going down? And I started quickly thinking like, what would I do? And then I realized I didn't hear a word that that wonderful lady said. And if, if this plane did in fact have an emergency, if this plane was in fact going down, I would be panicked as to what to do first. I'd be in utter shock because no one expects for that to happen. And I would find myself hopeless of what to do. Well, today Jesus in scripture is gonna paint for us a picture of a similar situation, but one of far more eternal weight and value. If you remember last week, as we started, Jesus was talking to the Pharisees who were lovers of money. They were adulterers at heart. Uh, They were living for their own passions and desires, elevating what was right in their own eyes when it was an abomination to the Lord. And Jesus continues to address the Pharisees today with a parable that is one of the most genius, most masterful, most sobering passages in all of the Bible. Just as I would have been shocked and void of all instruction in the case of my plane going down, Jesus paints a similar situation of many who will wake up in eternity. Ultimately, those who will wake up in hell. Y'all, this is one of the Bible's greatest warning passages. Uh, The message that you're gonna hear from God's word today is the most important message 
that the Bible could offer every person within earshot today. It's one of the great warning passages and it's warning the hearer to wake up. If I'm your flight attendant today, here's what I want to say to you. Wake up! Life is a vapor. It's here today. It's gone tomorrow. Put the cell phone down. Pay attention to the word of God and wake up this morning. The big idea that Jesus is getting across in this parable is that hell is real and it will be full of people who are surprised to be there. Hell will have evil people. Hell will have bad people. But hell will be full of religious people who are shocked to be there. Today we're going to see a testimony of one who woke up in that situation. And Jesus is not only painting for us this masterful parable, but he's telling the Pharisees to wake up and he's telling us today to take heed to his word. So we're going to pick it up in verse 19 together. Let's give our eyes to it, our attention to it. Now hear the word of the Lord. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, Remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all of this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg of you, father, to send him to my father's house for I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. I believe there's six things that Jesus wants us to take to heart from this sobering parable today. The first of those six things is man's condition. We're going to go verse by verse through this parable and pull out all of the things that Jesus was speaking of, that he was portraying to his audience that day. 
First thing he wants us to get is man's condition. Start in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. So Jesus paints the picture of a rich man, not just any rich man. This man was extravagantly and unfathomably rich. He was filthy rich. He flaunted it in the way that he dressed, in the way that he lived, in the way that he ate. It says that he was clothed in uh, purple and fine linen. To obtain the color of purple in Jesus' day uh, was quite a feat. It was very expensive. It was quite a process. And when you had purple dye, you didn't waste it on cheap linen, cheap clothing. And so this king, he's wearing uh, the most fashionable items of the day and he's flaunting it. For he, he was covered in gold chains and Gucci, maybe if that's, if that's extravagant for you, okay? Got the picture? And so this man had some serious swag. But not only was Jesus painting a picture of a filthy rich man, Jesus is painting a picture of, for the Pharisees of their ideal superstar of a human being. Someone who had made it to the top. It'd be like all of us as middle school basketball players and someone describing for us Michael Jordan. We're like, oh yeah, that's it. That's our guy. He, 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 he's at the top. I want to be like Mike, right? And so uh, here, here Jesus is painting for the Pharisees a picture of their ideal superstar. So why would this rich man be a hero to the Pharisees? Well, see, the Pharisees, they had this simple theology. They had a false theology. They had a prosperity theology that's very much alive in our culture today. See, for the Pharisees, it was simple. If you were rich and you had a lot of nice things, you were blessed by God. If you were rich and you amount to something on earth, you're blessed by God. Oh, this man must be a, a great man of faith. The, the Pharisees hear Jesus explaining about this rich man and they're like, yep, that's our guy, that's our guy. And then look what Jesus continues to do. We continue in the story and at his gate, so he had a gate out front of his mansion, was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. So in stark contrast to the rich man, Jesus introduces us to Lazarus, the beggar. Just as this wasn't any ordinary rich man, this is not an ordinary beggar of a man. This was a sick, sore, gross, oozing, destitute, poor, broken man. The word laid can also be translated to dumped. He was dumped outside of the rich man's gate in the case that he might catch a scrap of food. Oh, could you just throw me some of your garbage food, some of the food that has uh, trickled off onto the floor so that I might get some nourishment for today. It says that dogs came and licked his sores. This wasn't man's best friend. The dogs in that day were a curse. So after probably stealing uh, the food that was on the floor, these dirty, mangy, diseased mongrels who roamed the streets of Jerusalem would come and lick this man's sores. It's interesting to note that most parables leave every character nameless. I don't think you can find another parable where someone has an actual name. Usually they're just characters. Uh, and Jesus names this man Lazarus. Some have argued maybe this isn't a parable. Maybe it's a historical event. Um, it, it seems pretty consistent with the way that Jesus tells the story. And besides that, uh, Lazarus is not the main character of the story. He's just simply there for contrast. The rich man is the main character of the story. But the emphasis is not on Lazarus, but the meaning of his name. 
See, see, the name Lazarus meant whom the Lord saves, whom the Lord helps. That tells us something about Lazarus. But just as Lazarus is in stark contrast to the rich man and the stories, the Pharisees' ignorant theology would have seen someone in his situation and believed that he was cursed. If you were poor and needy and didn't amount to anything in life, you were cursed by God. If you were rich and had a lot of nice things, you were blessed by God. For the Pharisees, man's condition was the measure of where they stood with God. But as quick as Jesus masterfully pulls them in, he's about to blow their minds with reality. The reality that man's earthly condition doesn't mean anything in the eyes of God or in eternity. That brings us to the second thing Jesus wants us to get from this great parable, and that is death's reality. He first confronts us with man's condition. So at this point, the Pharisees are like, oh, I got, yeah, I get this. This is great. Jesus, now, now we're finally tracking with the great teacher. Uh, rich man blessed, poor man cursed. Jesus goes on. Let's read in the parable, verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. So the poor man dies. He has no funeral. He went unnoticed while he was living. Why would it be noticed that he died? He had no one, and yet because he had a name, he had a name in the kingdom of God, he is immediately carried by angels to Abraham's side. It's a beautiful picture for those who are in Christ Jesus of the immediate reckoning the immediate reconciliation of man with God in the presence of God. And here, broken, worn, tired, sick, and sore from the trials and tribulation of life, Lazarus is safe and secure in God. Jesus uses the term Abraham's side because the Jewish leaders would have instantly known that this was in the heavenly places, that this was a good dwelling place, not just a good dwelling place, this was a place of high honor. And yet this is where the Pharisees are like, Hold up, Lazarus, the, the, the poor beggar in a place of high honor? Jesus' story starts to take a turn. We keep reading. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades. So the rich man dies. He had a funeral. He had a proper burial, but he didn't have a name. He didn't have a name in Jesus' story. He didn't have a name in the kingdom of God. And he wakes up in hell, nameless, because no one needs a name in hell. Jesus uses the word Hades, which is synonymous with what we know as hell, and it refers to the underworld, or it's translated to the abode of the damned. The sobering message that Jesus paints for the Pharisees is the inevitable reality of death. Everyone will die. Everyone who's here today, our days are numbered. Everyone will die. And upon death, everyone will go immediately to one of two places. And it has nothing to do with your worldly condition or your stance in society or the amount of blessing you accrue or the hardship that you face. Death is coming, and it will prove whether or not you found your hope as whom the Lord saves, like Lazarus, 
or you found your hope in helping yourself like the rich man. The rich man lived extravagantly, chasing the things of this world. He had many nice things, many great things. Eat, drink, and be merry was his philosophy. And as heavenly as his time on earth was, it was brought to an end upon death. J.C. Ryle, an early theologian, he says this, He who lives well should often keep in mind his last day and keep close company with that thought against murmuring and discontent and envy in the state of poverty, against pride and self-sufficiency and arrogance in the possession of wealth. There are few better antidotes than the remembrance of death. The beggar died and his bodily wants were at an end. The rich man died and his pleasures were stopped forevermore. Do you think about your last days? Do you think about the fact that you're not promised tomorrow? Do you think about the fact that life is a vapor? It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. Or do you live flippantly chasing the things of this world, the things that will pass away easily upon death? The third thing that Jesus confronts us with is hell's torment. Hell's torment. The rich man also died and was buried in verse 23. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. So here Jesus uses the word torment. Some of the other words associated with what happens in hell uh, throughout scripture are words like weeping, wailing, gnashing of teeth, endless fire. It says that he lifted up his eyes. It refers to the consciousness that you will have in hell. Consciousness of what, you might ask. Keep reading in verse 24. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. To start, you'll have consciousness of your need for mercy. Imagine being in a place of nagging, constant torment, and for the first time realizing that you are a wretched and sinful person in need of mercy. Imagine that. But this is simply a constant awareness you will live with, not something that you will ever get. This man wakes up in hell asking for mercy. Look what it says in verse 24. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. So he recognizes Lazarus. He didn't seem to recognize Lazarus when he drove in and out of his gate every single day. But now he looks up from Hades. He recognizes that Lazarus is in the place of honor beside Abraham he says, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to bring me a dip of a drip of water from his finger. I think it's interesting that he didn't ask for a bucket of water. He doesn't ask for a hose or a constant stream. He just asked for a tiny drop off the tip of a finger. The souls of those in hell suffer so profoundly that even a drop of relief would mean everything to them. And notice he 
asked Abraham to send Lazarus to show him mercy. He doesn't speak to Lazarus, he speaks to Abraham. He wants Lazarus to serve his needs. See, hell doesn't fix you. Hell doesn't make you better. Hell doesn't cause you to repent. Hell just confirms you in your sinfulness. This man in hell, he doesn't ask God to take him away from hell. He doesn't ask God to rescue him. He doesn't ask God to forgive him of his sins. He just asks for a drop of relief and he proves that he's still arrogant as he asked Lazarus to come and serve his needs. The merciless asking for mercy from the one he never showed mercy to. He didn't acknowledge Lazarus on earth and now in anguish he desires Lazarus to be sent to acknowledge him. Look in verse 25. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish there. Abraham reminds the rich man of both his earthly condition and Lazarus's earthly condition and how they do not matter now that they are in eternity. Abraham reminds him that he had everything on earth, many good things, but he chose to self-indulge rather than glory in God. And what Lazarus was physically, you, the rich man, are spiritually and now eternally. What a sobering picture. Imagine the Pharisees in that moment. They're prosperity, theology shattered as Jesus, the good teacher, paints for them a picture of worldly and physical comfort being taken away forever for those who have chosen to walk in their own flesh, to self-indulge rather than give glory to God. Not only does Jesus confront us with hell's torment, the fourth thing Jesus wants us to get is that of hell's permanency. Hell's permanency. We continue in verse 26. After all that, Abraham says, and besides all this, besides the torment that you're facing, besides the consciousness that you have of your need for mercy, besides those things, between us now, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. There's a lot of, um, there's some theories that would say, you know, will, hell will cease to exist. Is hell forever? Uh, as you look in God's word, so many verses seem to have consistent language surrounding the fact, the truth, that hell is a place that will last forever, that hell is eternal. It's interesting to note that the same Greek word used to describe the eternal nature of God is also used to describe the eternal nature of hell. As eternal as we know God to be, so is hell. The Bible speaks a lot about hell. Jesus spoke more about hell than he did heaven. 
But listen to some of these. Mark 9, 48 describes hell as where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Daniel 12, 2 says that hell is a place of shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 12, 13 says it is endless, isolated torture. And Jude speaks of its everlasting fire that cannot be Consumed, And here in Luke's gospel, Jesus portrays the permanent gap, the unbridgeable chasm between heaven and eternal hell. You can't get to heaven from hell. No one in heaven will visit you in hell. Hell is desolate, lonely, conscious torment without relief, without escape, and without end. Makes me think of the unbridgeable chasm that has been placed between man, sinful man and God. And yet God, as long as we're breathing the air on this earth, he sent his perfect son, Jesus, to bridge that chasm. When Jesus died on a cross, he made a way. He was the truth. He is the life for all who would call upon his great name. So that we could go from this sinful, broken world into the heavenly places where he prepares a place for all those who are his children. The chasm between sinful man and God has been bridged by Jesus. But the chasm between eternal hell and eternal heaven will stand forever Notice in 27, and the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. Talk about another degree of torment. Ending up in hell, conscious of those you love, destined for hell, and not being able to warn them. Such a sobering picture from Jesus' story. Leads us to the fifth thing Jesus wants us to take from this parable, and that is Scripture's sufficiency. Scripture sufficiency. So the man begins to become urgent. He asks for someone to be sent to his brother, sent to his house to warn them. Look in verse 29. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. You remember uh, last week, the Pharisees, they were not... Uh, taking heed to the law and the prophets. Moses and the prophets is essentially the same thing. It's essentially the Old Testament. They weren't building their lives on what God had showed them in the revelation of Moses and the prophets. They were casting it out. They were walking and justifying what was right in their own eyes when it was an abomination to the Lord. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, Abraham says to the rich man, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. So they were looking for a sign. 
The Pharisees knew all about that. Like their theology, like they're like, just give me a sign. I need, I need, I need to see it. I just want to hear from God. If I have enough faith, man, I'll get what I, get what I want. The rich man, he's the same way. He's in hell and he's like, no, they don't, they don't, Jesus or, or Abraham, they don't need the Old Testament. Like they need a sign. Send them someone to rise from the dead and then they'll be like, oh yeah, that's it. And look what Jesus, look what Abraham says. He said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. If they do not hear, Romans says faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Hearing through the word of Christ. People don't go to hell for a lack of information. The Bible talks plenty about it. People don't go to hell for a lack of information. People don't go to hell for a lack of signs, a lack of wonders, a lack of fresh revelation. And yet, man, this is so alive in our culture. If God would just, man, I, I get the Bible, like it's a historical book, but that was man's things written down. And, and like, I just need God to speak. Like I've been praying, I got enough faith. I just need God to come through. I need God to heal my situation. I need God to provide for me. And then I, I would know that I'm on the right path. Y'all, this has all that we need for life and for godliness. People don't go to hell for a lack of any of those things. People go to hell because they've hardened their hearts to the good news and the instruction manual called the Bible. It has all we need for life and godliness. It has the keys to following the way, the truth, and the life. This has the keys to facing hardship and injustice, and trauma, and tragedy, and suffering, and want, and need, and desire. It speaks to all those things and so many more. First Peter 1.19, it says this, we also have the prophetic message, talking about the Bible, as something completely reliable. This book is completely reliable for us today. We build our life on what it says. We stand on the foundation of the word of Christ. Other versions say we have the prophetic message of something that is more sure. More sure than what? More sure than even Jesus himself standing in front of us is the word of God. He has given us the whole counsel, his divine revelation that we might be careful to obey what it says and to walk in its ways. It's completely reliable and you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. What could the rich man and his family have learned from Moses and the prophets? They could have learned a lot of things had they taken the instruction of the Old Testament they could have learned that God is creator and that he created them. They could have learned about their own sinfulness and separation from God. They could have learned about salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. They could have learned that God offers salvation from sin and is the only justifier of the sinful. They could have learned that substitution is how God deals with sin. They could have learned of a coming savior. They could have learned to deny themselves. They could have learned to cast down their idols. They could have learned to repent and believe. 
You can learn all of this and so much more from the Old Testament. And Abraham tells the rich man, and Jesus is telling the Pharisees, if you won't believe and take to heart and follow all of that, then not even a resurrection could get your attention. And Jesus knew that not too much longer he would give them the resurrection that they so longed for. That Jesus would die on a cross in their place as a substitute for their sins. He would die and be buried and raised three days later, holding the keys to death and Hades and the grave. And he would rise to the place of honor seated at the right hand of God. And still many would not believe. Y'all, just as they had no excuse not to follow God, not to live for their own passions and desires, you and I have even less excuse today. We have the whole counsel of God. We have the Old Testament and the New Testament. You can go down to Barnes and Noble and buy one in your language in many different versions for $9.99. Go out in our lobby and buy a Bible today. Build your life upon the foundation of God's word. Not only do we have the Old Testament and the New Testament, we even have a resurrection. Historical proof of Jesus giving himself, innocent, dying on a cross, rising from the dead, substituting himself for our wickedness, our sinfulness, our need for God. Paying a price he didn't deserve so that we could be called children of God. And even with all of that, even with the old and new and Jesus and testimonies of his bride, the road is still wide that leads to destruction. Many are on it. And many upon death will claim to have done great works and great things in the name of God. God, I lived for you. I, I did all that. I, I did good things. I used, I, I helped people. I went to church every week. I raised my hands in worship. And those who have failed to repent of their sin, to turn from their sin, to follow Christ, to put their hope and trust and faith in Jesus Christ alone and his work on the cross. Many will stand before God and hear, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. The most heartbreaking words in all of scripture. And yet God in his grace has given us his word. He's given us the instructions. He's told us to wake up. So Jesus' parable, he confronts us with man's condition. It won't matter in eternity. He confronts us with death's reality. Every person will die and go to one of two places. He confronts us with hell's torment, conscious torment. He confronts us with hell's permanency. He confronts us with scripture sufficiency. 
Build your life on the word of God. Memorize the word of God. Hide God's word in your heart that you might not sin against him. And the sixth thing I believe Jesus wants us to get today is today's urgency. Today's urgency. What are you waiting for if you haven't surrendered your life to Jesus? Your urgency in hell will count for nothing. This rich man wakes up in hell and all of a sudden he starts getting urgent. Oh, I need mercy, but it was too late. Oh, what about, I I have brothers, I have family. Someone please go and tell them of the good news. Tell them to follow Jesus before it's too late. And yet his urgency and hell counted for nothing. But your lack of urgency today could cost you everything. Man, what are you waiting for? Jesus gave his life for you. Jesus died for you. He was perfect. He never sinned. He was blameless. He left heaven. He left the heavenly places in the presence of God to come to our sinful and broken and messed up world to pursue a relationship with you because he loves you. How could hell exist? Why would hell exist? Why are people in hell? So many questions, right? And yet why would God pour out his perfect love on us? Why would God pour out his wrath towards sin on his perfect beloved son who never did anything wrong? To save a sinful, broken wretch like me. Why would he do that? What do I have to offer a king? What do I have to offer the creator of the universe? Nothing. And yet God gave everything for me. God gave everything for you. And he so desires that you would turn from your sin. Stop chasing the things of this world. Stop wondering and worrying and looking for a sign when he's already given you everything that you need to find hope and peace and grace and life in his word. You are not promised tomorrow. So repent and believe and follow Christ. Turn from your sin. Believe in your heart that he is God and that God raised him from the dead. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord of all. The Bible says if you do those things, if you truly do those things, you will be saved. Just as we're not promised tomorrow, our friends and our family and our coworkers and our classmates, they're not promised tomorrow either. And so for all those in Christ Jesus, man, this should light a fire under us. Let's live sent. Let's be useful to God. What do we have to be afraid of, man? 
Life is coming to an end. God's bride should be telling this story with boldness, with passion, with clarity, with urgency while there's still time. I want you to bow your heads. I don't know where you came from today, what you brought into this room with you today. I don't know what you're struggling with today. Maybe you were just trying to check out church and didn't think you were going to get this heavy message on hell. Consider it God's grace to you today that he would direct your eyes to the eternal places. If you didn't hear anything today, then I pray that you would hear this. Jesus loves you so much. He came to this world to endure the things that you endure. He was tempted like you are, tempted to run after the same things you have. He was tried with trials but he never sinned and he was obedient to the point of death, death on a cross. And he loves you so much that he rose again, defeating death, defeating the grave, defeating eternal hell. He's given us a love letter in his word. And this morning, don't rush past what the Holy Spirit might be saying to you. Don't rush past if the Holy Spirit is trying to get into the hardness of your heart. If the Holy Spirit is drawing you to himself, lean into it, press into it, and receive Jesus Christ as Lord of your life. He can give you a new life. You can bring all your baggage, all your worries, all your stress, all your questions, your addiction, your pain. We can, he can figure all of that out later. He just wants your heart today and right now. For every other person in this room, even as your heads are bowed, pray for those who need Jesus. Pray for those who need this message. Pray for those whose eyes need to be opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. Pray that God would give you a divine opportunity to speak truth to them. With every head bowed, I'm gonna pray in a moment. If the Lord is speaking, if the Lord is moving, and you want to receive his grace and his mercy, and you want to have a new life, and you want to have a new heart, then when I'm done praying, we're going to stand, we're going to sing. You get out of that row and come forward. There'll be some pastors, elders up here to receive you, to pray with you, to answer any questions you might have. Don't leave today without talking to somebody. Don't brush it off. You're not promised tomorrow. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, all of us 
are nothing without Jesus. Would you help us to be like Lazarus in the midst of our pain and our trials and our sores and our hunger and our thirst and our brokenness? Would you give us a name? Would you help us, Lord? Would you be our saving grace, Lord? Would we know that in the midst of those fiery things, we are safe and secure in the master's hands and in his plan? God, would you help us not to be like the rich man running and chasing and seeking after things that are temporal, things that don't matter, things that will fade away. God, would you help us not to live our heaven here on earth? God, would you help us to live for the eternal heaven that is to come? Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who needs to receive Jesus Christ as Lord of their life who needs to make him Lord of their life. I pray for any person in this room, God, where you brought them here specifically today so that they would hear this and so that they would surrender and so that they would repent and they would believe and they would follow Jesus for the first time. God, bring dead people to life. God, change people's course of life. God, turn people's affections towards you and not the things of this world. Do it. We put our hope and our trust in you. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Come on, let's stand to our feet. If you want to come forward, you can come forward. Please don't hesitate. Let's sing with confidence in Christ alone. In Christ alone.